0: Hello, everyone. As was said earlier, I'm Adam, one of the pastors here at the Ring, one of the elders, and I'm very excited to be able to be up here and to bring you a message from the book of James. As you probably know, we've been in this summer series on James for, for quite a while now. Uh, this is going to be a 10-week series, and this is the ninth week. I have the ninth week. The penultimate sermon in this series. Again, I'm, I'm very excited to be up here. Uh, as, as we do every week in this series, we're going to go through the slides that help to give us a little bit of context for this book. So let's go ahead and do that. Uh, this letter was written by James, uh, known as James the Just. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he was the brother of Jesus. It's a, a letter to Jewish Christian house churches that were scattered throughout the region. You may remember at the beginning of the letter... Uh, James mentioning to the dispersion. They're dispersed. So that's, that's what the letter is. Uh, it was written in the early to mid-40s, and it's the oldest book in the New Testament. And uh, this letter made its way to a lot of places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the Mediterranean, uh, Asia Minor, and Europe. And it's kind of cool to think about how prolific this letter was in that ancient time to get to all those places. And the reason that James wrote this was to pastor his people through difficult times with the message, no matter what's going on, live out your faith. No matter what is going on, live out your faith. And that's some of the ideas that we'll explore tonight. And I want to make a quick note about the importance of this uh, context that we're going over. I think it's easy for us to uh, think of these these early church communities, these early Christians, and think that they're so different from us, that they lived in such different times, and uh, their context was so different that we can't relate to them. But the reality is uh, they're very much like us in a lot of ways. They were a community of believers seeking after the Lord, trying to be a light to the world. Uh, Surely they ate together, they worshipped together, they prayed together, they were good friends, they had conflicts and resolve those conflicts. Uh, they knew each other's kids. They attended each other's marriages, those kinds of things. Uh, these are real people, just like we're real people. So uh, I want us to look at that text, at this text through that lens. And James is writing to them as their leader, as their pastor who knows them well and who knows what they're going through. You think about the elders or pastors here at the ring. We know this community well. We all know each other well. So it's, it's a deep level of knowing that James has. So if you would turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 tonight, almost to the end of it. Throughout this series, uh, especially in chapters 1 through 4, we've hit on a lot the fact that James does not waste his words. He's kind of uh, giving some very practical, very direct, very sharp-edged or harsh teachings, we could even say. But he's doing it in love. Uh, but but we know that uh, he's a very direct writer in this letter. And then we get to chapter 5, which we looked at last week. And you see he starts the chapter with a warning to the rich, which is a warning to the oppressors of the people he's writing to. He's caring for them. He's comforting them in this way. Chapter 5 He switches gears a bit, and he starts to care for the people through his letter. And then there's another section on how to be patient in suffering. So again, he's encouraging them in these things. Then we get to the passage we're going to look at tonight. It's even more care-focused than the rest of chapter 5. He's talking about mutual care of the community by the community. So we kinda have to read James maybe a little differently here uh, because he's not he's not as direct and he's not as sharp edged as he was leading up to this. So I'll go ahead and and read the whole passage. Verse thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So we see here prayer is an obvious theme. And that's what we're going to be talking tonight. He mentions prayer in every single verse. Uh, And so as we approach this, I think it's useful for us to bring to mind our prayer lives, bring to mind how we understand prayer, what we believe about it, what are our prayer practices and disciplines. And allow this text to kind of filter them uh, as we see what the Lord might have for us regarding prayer. So as we go through it, we're going to pull out four uh, four elements of the praying community. There are going to be four big ideas here. So let's let's begin to walk through it. Verses thirteen and fourteen: Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Immediately, James mentions suffering, and he's doing this in a pattern of rhetorical questions, and he's, he's answering them. Uh, so suffering, obviously, a common theme in this book, as we've seen, and we know that these people are oppressed, that they're persecuted, that it's difficult. So we know that they are suffering. This is relevant. James knows them. So those of us in trials and in suffering, he says, the answer, let him pray. And then he moves on to a second category of people. Is anyone cheerful? The answer is, let him sing praise. And that word cheerful can be translated in a few different ways. Cheerful, merry, very similar, but also the idea of taking up courage. Are you of good courage? Are you able to take up courage? Are you, can you be enthusiastic? Kind of, are things going okay enough for you to take up courage? That, that sort of thing, and his solution there, his command, let him sing praise. Sing praise being the word, uh, the Greek word that is translated sing psalms. So, in a nutshell, James is saying, Is anyone cheerful? Let him pray also. In verse fourteen, he moves to a third category of people. Is anyone, is any among you sick? That word, sick, can mean a number of things, just like many words. uh, Sick, weakened, down, uh, powerless. It's a more holistic idea there. And what is his solution? Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So his solution, again, is prayer. And in this case, the powerless, the weak, the sick person, James is acknowledging that they're probably so deep in that state that they they can't uh, pray for themselves or go to the Lord themselves as they normally would. So his solution is, call for the spiritually mature among you and they will intercede for you. So again, prayer is the answer. And he goes on to say, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's important to note that anointing with oil, that's not where the power of this verse comes from. Uh, note that it says, oil in the name of the Lord. The power is in the prayer. The power is from God. The oil is, was a significant part of their culture, and it's a symbol of healing. It's a symbol of care and comfort. So the power is not in the oil. James isn't telling these elders that are gathering around this person to uh, prepare some magical spell or some superstitious weirdness. Uh, It is a symbol that meant something to their culture. So we see James presenting, uh, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone among you sick? What is he trying to do? Why does he present these three states of being? James is giving a comprehensive look at how everyone in their community is doing. Is anyone among you suffering? Who is walking through a trial right now, suffering currently? You're in the trenches. The answer is to pray. Is anyone doing okay? Maybe you're on the the outside of a trial and things went well. You abided through it. You must also pray. Is anyone among you sick? Are you so powerless? Have you lost a battle? Have you lost a spiritual battle? Have you lost a physical battle? Are you ailing physically? Uh, Are circumstances just crushing you? Has something wounded you deeply emotionally? emotionally? It could be many things. But the fact is, this person is powerless. The answer still is to pray. Prayer is the answer even if you must call other people to intercede for you. So he gives us those three spiritual states, and what we can understand from that is our first big point of the night. Pray in all circumstances. James, he starts, you know, it's interesting that he puts the stuff about prayer and care for each other at the end of the letter. I think that's significant. And then he starts that section with the fact that you always need to pray no matter what circumstance you're in. Keep that lifeline to God. Cultivate that prayer life. I don't think it's a, a huge leap to apply this to us and our body. How easy is it for us when we're suffering, albeit in a different way than these people maybe, but when we're suffering, how easy is it for us to take trials in our own strength and not to reflexively go to God with it, to filter our thoughts and our ideas through him? It's easy for us not to invite him in when we're in trials. And if we're cheerful, if things are going well, how easy is it to forget God and not invite him in? Because things are going well, we don't need him. And lastly, if anyone is of us is in a weakened state, how easy is it for us to uh, cling on to our pride or to our fear and not let anyone in and not call for people to intercede or pray for us, not to share what's going on and let that come into the community so you can be cared for. How easy is that not to invite God in in that way? So that's the first point prayer in all circumstances, cultivate that prayer life. It's not just for certain seasons. So moving on to verse 15 for our second point. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is an interesting verse. Uh, James uses... A lot of very sure language. He's very convinced about this, what he calls the prayer of faith. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He's very sure of himself. So how, do, how can we understand that? What is the prayer of faith that he is talking about? I think he sounds a lot like Jesus in this verse. We think about Jesus in different parts of his ministry. In Mark 11, where Jesus says, and we won't, we won't turn there, but in Mark 11, where he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It will be yours. He's sure of himself as well. And in John 14, where he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Jesus is just as sure as James is. And I think the reason there is because they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about a certain understanding of prayer, and it's the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. We can call it the prayer of faith. We can call it prayer in Jesus' name. We can call it believing prayer. But what does that mean? Believing prayer is a natural expression of our relationship with God. That's where prayer happens. You cannot separate prayer from a relationship. The way, the, the way things get done in the kingdom is by asking. And you ask things of people within a relationship. So you're always in full view of our relationship with God when we pray this way. Believing prayer. So this applies in the situation James is talking about as these elders gather around this weak person, but this also applies broadly in our prayer lives whenever we ask God for things. Believing prayer We have to think about it in terms of relationship. Again, that's very important. And it's Trinitarian in nature. Trinitarian. The Spirit inspires us and leads us to pray for things. We do that by way of Jesus and we do it in His name, in His character, and we ask of the Father. The full Trinity is invited in to our lives as we're practicing believing prayer. That is how it's Designed, So we invite God into our situation and we make requests to him based on what we know about his character. Think about when you ask anyone anything, when you make a request of someone to do something. You always ask within that relationship and you always ask based on what you know about them and your relationship with them. It's very simple. And when we do it this way, of course we can believe that he's going to give us what we ask him because we're asking within the limits of what we know about him, what he's shown us knowledge. That's how every other relationship works. Why would it be any different in our relationship with God? And I know this has been kind of abstract thus far, but imagine a, a child, so a four or five year old kid maybe, coming up to his loving parents, his mom or dad. And he has to do something. Uh, They want to go somewhere. He wants to eat something or uh, go play somewhere. Whatever it may be. Think about this kid. Think about your kid. I don't know. And realize that kid believes that you're going to do this thing for them. They're not asking just as some odd exercise. Why why would they do that? That is how we approach the Lord. In that same healthy childlikeness. That we're called to in the Gospels. We must believe that prayer actually does something. We must believe that. How much does that keep us from praying that we think nothing's going to happen? Again, Jesus says, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That changes the way we ask Him things. Again, it's Trinitarian, it happens in relationship, it's a holistic thing, it's not random or arbitrary. So we make our requests to him and we trust in his answer. And the way that works is that as we abide in Christ and we are inspired to pray and we ask him things, one thing that could happen is he does it as we ask and we have that answered prayer and that is a blessing. The other option is that God answers in a different way. And that should be a comfort to us because God, God only settles for his perfect will. He will settle, settle for nothing less than his perfect will and the things we ask for him. So when we don't get an answer that we want in prayer, perhaps, that's actually the best thing for us. And I know that's tough and possibly confusing, but you think about that relationship. You always think about prayer in terms of the loving father with his child. And it's very simple. So those are some thoughts about believing prayer. On the other side of that, what is believing prayer not? Believing prayer is not something we ask out of obligation or because we just feel like we're supposed to. It's so easy for us to pray because of some outside force, whether that's in our minds or outside of us, uh, trying to tell us that maybe we should pray this many times a day or, or have this discipline where it's forced upon us and that's not what a loving relationship looks like where you ask someone something uh, a quick illustration i have a, a five-year-old nephew and let's say let's say i'm i'm with him and he wants to go play outside and he has to put his shoes on and he asks me to help him tie his shoe sure of course so i help him to tie his shoe Now, one of two things can happen. He can, immediately when I'm done tying his shoe, get up and expect us both to run out the door and go play outside. And as he's running, someone else in the house, I I don't know who, but someone else in the house says, Anthony, his name is Anthony, says, Anthony, tell Uncle Adam thank you for helping you tie your shoe. And then as he's in that full-speed sprint outside, he looks back and mumbles, thank you, and he's, but he's full speed ahead. Now, another thing that can happen is when I'm done tying his shoe, he can take a moment and stop and look me in the eye and tell me thank you. And then we both go outside. Or, you know, in his five-year-old mind, however he wants to display gratitude, uh, who knows, but he could take that moment and show his gratitude. Now, what's the difference there? One, it was impressed upon him from the outside, it was unthinking on his part. I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything, believe me. But in the other situation, it's a natural expression of relationship. It's a recognize he recognizes my love and commitment to him, and then he gives that right back. And it happens in relationship. Do you see how that can be different for the one receiving the gratitude? And in this illustration for God based on how we approach prayer. It's just not how relationships work when we do things, when we pray by obligation or superstition or because we merely feel like we're supposed to or out of guilt or we just lift up a quick one-sentence prayer because we want to tell someone we're praying for them or something. There's something weird. There's something, there's something odd about that approach to things. And again, I'm not saying... Uh, God doesn't hear earnest prayers because of course he hears earnest prayers but we bring in we invite in the whole trinity we invite in the full context of relationship when we pray in this way when we ask God things we're completely mindful of his character and we ask based on what we believe he would want because his will is perfect his character is perfect Jesus has set the perfect example for us so that is how we ask for things it's deep and it's relational and it's a believing kind of prayer. That way it's easy for us to believe. We don't have to ascend to some level of faith to ask these things. It's natural. Go with what you know about him. That's the prayer of faith. That's believing prayer. It's a natural expression of relationship. And this, this is what James is talking about. The Spirit inspires that person who is weak and powerless to call for the elders to pray for them. The Spirit inspires the elders to obey that. The Spirit inspires the elders to, do, to check in with that person spiritually. A lot is implied here about their relationship, as, you'll, as we'll see in the next few verses. But this is, this is how James and Jesus, and this is how we can be so sure about our prayers. When we truly believe and we ask in his name, That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, ask in my name, with my character. Ask the things that he would want to do because those are the best things. So that's our second point for tonight, is believing prayer. That's what James is getting at with them. Continuing on, uh, the first half of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. Confession. It's implied in the last verse. Some of the language James is using, it's clear that these elders are checking in spiritually at a deep level with this person that is called for them. And then he reiterates, confess to each other and pray for one another. Confession is an essential element of the Christian community. And note that James is talking about a certain kind of confession here. He's talking about a horizontal confession, Christian to Christian. Though, of course, that doesn't discount a more vertical Christian to God confession. But he's talking about that extra step where we confess things to our fellow believer. And I really believe that the mechanics and and all that of confession really deserve their own sermon. But I want to hit on a few points that I think are useful to us and that James is getting across about confession. What do we know about sin in this sense? Sin issues, they want us to be in isolation. They want us to withdraw from the community. Confession helps us to bring that to light. And it helps us to resist that isolation. I think we've all been in those seasons where we're dealing with the sin issue, we're struggling. And we know that that issue wants, just wants us to compartmentalize it. And it's saying, I know I'm personifying a sin issue a lot here, but it's saying, you know, keep me in your life. You can still live a good life, but keep me over here. Compartmentalize me here and I'll be fine over here. Just live your life, but don't let anyone in here. This is mine and yours. This is just for you. And that's, what, that's how sin withdraws us from community and it prevents us from going as deep as we can go with people. And it prevents people from praying for us in the ways they really wish to pray for us. So again, confession relinquishes us of that. It brings those sins to light. Holding on to sins and letting them fester Like that, it puts miles on our soul that God wants to heal. Look, in the verse it says, and confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I'm sure many of us have experienced the lifting of a burden when you confess something to someone. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, how that works. It's when we... We truly repent and we loosen our grip on our sin issues that we can bring them to other people because we know they have no power over us. It helps us in that, in that area and it helps people to accurately pray for us. Another point, and I find this one very interesting, but it's so true. Confession helps us to truly despise our sin. We know how important it is to we know how important it is for us not to enjoy the fact that we deal with sin issues, uh, to be angry, not to be angry, but to hate our sin. Really. It's a strong word, but it's true. And there are a few times when you'll despise your sin more than when you're telling someone about it. And that is healthy. And God uses that. And he, he redeems things. And he tells you, and he reminds you that everything's going to be okay. Uh, we have to take steps of faith in this area. So I want to paint a quick scenario of this. Someone decides that the Lord or the Lord leads someone to confess some sin issue to a fellow believer. Maybe, maybe someone they've personally wronged or if it's a, a personal, uh, maybe secret sin, they, they find maybe a more mature believer or someone they trust, someone they know is abiding that can handle this kind of thing. And they they spill their guts to the the amount of detail that is appropriate. And the person being confessed to, what are they going to do? There's no fear there. There's no condemnation there. There's no judgment when handled well. Uh, They encourage the person that's confessing. Speak truth to them. Remind them who they are. Remind them that that sin no longer has any power over them. They pray for them in the moment and ongoing. And it brings accountability. We're all in process. And we're all learning to be both of these roles better. Confessing sin and being confessed too. We have to take steps of faith in this area. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And again, it's, there's such power in it. So much that James would use the words that you may be healed. Confess to each other that you may be healed. So that's the third big idea from this passage is confession. And so far we've seen that we must pray in all circumstances, that we must pray with believing prayer in Jesus name, and then we must confess to each other. We'll pull one more thing out of verse 16, the second half of verse 16 onto the end of this passage in 18. 16 says The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So here James is making another reference to an Old Testament hero. Just like we saw last week where he referenced Job, he's referencing Elijah here, obviously, to show what's possible with prayer, the power of prayer. And you really have to get in the minds of these people reading this letter. I have to think that they're reading this and, okay, you know, pray in all circumstances and we'll confess to each other and all this stuff. And then, okay, we can do this. We can pray. But Elijah, are we going to have the prayer power that Elijah had really causing this drought, and then causing it to rain again, is that really something that's available to us? Why is James doing that? Why is James pulling, pulling those things together? The answer is, is in verse 16 at the end. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What do these groups of believers that James is writing to and Elijah have in common? Righteousness. Righteousness is the key to power in prayer. That is our fourth point. He reminds them of their righteousness, and I believe he's saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. You're made righteous by the work of Christ. Because of Jesus, we have right standing with God, and the abiding life has been made available to us, and we have his Holy Spirit And we can live life for him and with him completely. Uh, It's available to us. The prayer of a righteous person is of great power as it is working. That's an interesting verse in itself, translation-wise. Isn't it kind of a weird phrase as it is working to talk about prayer? A more literal translation of this, which needs explanation, I think, is the prayer of a righteous person is of great power when energized. Energized. Our prayers are energized. What does that mean? Saying that something is energized, doesn't that imply an energizer? The energizer of our prayers is the Holy Spirit, and it's the whole trinity that we invite into our prayer lives when we pray in Jesus' name, when we, do, when we pray in the way that Jesus has instructed us to. So our prayers are energized. That's where they get their power from. We are made righteous by the work of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection have made a way for us to God. And now we get to live a new life. So we live that life and we seek the kingdom first and all the power of believing. Prayer is made available to us as a natural expression of that relationship with him. As we grow more and more, we understand more and more. This is our identity now. It's our identity that gives us that power in prayer, that righteousness that gives us the power in prayer. So those are our Our four points. We must pray in all circumstances. We must pray with believing prayer in the context of our relationship with the Lord. We confess our sins to each other and pray for each other. And we do all this by the power of the righteousness that Christ has won for us, and we never forget who we are. So James is writing to these people, again, talking about believing something james wouldn't put this in this letter if he didn't believe they could do it he's saying you can be the kind of people that practice these things you can be the kind of people with vibrant prayer lives giving everything to the lord and walking in power with it as he leads you and he's saying the same thing to us again we're not very different from this community so if we can become those individuals Then we can become a community that practices these things together. We can become a community of prayerful love, all for the glory of God, and Jesus has made it all possible for us. These four things reveal a community whose members mutually care for each other, all led by the Lord. Mutual care. I think that's an amazing idea for us, and I think in a lot of ways we're great at that, and in a lot of ways we're growing at that. But do you see, it takes so much pressure off of us when all we do is keep our eyes on our shepherd and we follow the Lord. We'll be caring for people well. If we're steady and if we're faithful in our prayer lives, then the follow-ups for that, the checking in and the actual living life with people and doing things for them, that, of course, will happen because we are praying for them and God is leading us, and it's a natural expression of that. Imagine the church communities that James is writing to and all that they were dealing with. We've covered so many things that they were dealing with, whether it's uh, being dragged to jail violently and unjustly or having their wages withheld, Um, They were very poor. Surely some of them were being martyred. It's not a pretty picture. And yet they still prioritized prayer, and they cared for each other well. The early church thrived in this way, and look at all that they were dealing with. I can't help but imagine James there. And, you know, we've talked about how fervent he was in his prayer just seeking the Lord and praying for them and saying, Lord, help them to get these few things right. Help them to care for each other. How, how much of a light to the world does that make us if someone from the outside comes in and everyone is caring for each other so well and actually means something to us to pray for each other? And we ask those believing prayers of God for the good of our community and for the good of each other, not only in our individual lives or for circumstances, but we ask God to grow the people among us. We ask God to grow our best friends in the community. We ask God to grow the people we don't get along with very well yet in the community. It's all filtered through that relationship in prayer. It's all about what God wants and how he inspires us to ask. So it's available to us. We have the opportunity to cultivate our prayer lives in these ways and intercede for each other like it really matters because it does. If the early church could do it, then so can we. We're not that different from them. We have the same shepherd. We have the same leader. We have the same inspiration. It's possible for us as well. And again, I think we're there in a lot of ways and in a lot of ways we can grow. So I pray that this is challenging to us in some ways. I I pray that this is that we're thinking about caring for each other, caring for our community groups, for the ministry teams we're on, just everyone in this room as a community, then that makes us such a light to the world, a light to this city. So let's care for each other well. Let's pursue these things. That is living out our faith. So as we pursue the Lord and pursue what we've talked about We can have confidence that he'll lead us every step of the way and grow us. And we take steps of faith, trust each other, and really go to bat for each other in prayer. All with the leadership of Jesus in full view of our relationship with him and what he's done for us. I'll close us in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we've gotten to spend together and go through your word, Lord. We acknowledge that we need your help with this so badly, Lord. We are all works in progress. And I, I just thank you that you're, you're growing each of us, God, that you're, that you're making these opportunities available, Lord, and that you've given us a plan for prayer. You've taught us how to do it, God, and that you're going to help us walk out every bit of it. I thank you that you're good and that you're perfect. And that you wish to help us, Lord. That you love us so much, that you want to lead us every step of the way, God. We thank you most of all for your Son and his defeat of death that has opened a way for us, Lord, given us righteousness. We're so thankful, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Appreciate your attention tonight. We're going to sing two songs. The first I would like us to focus more individually. Think about your own life with the Lord. Lift lift some things up to him. And the second song is more of a community focus. Let's sing it over the community. The community of prayerful love and mutual care that we are and that he is making us into. We're going to have a few moments just to reflect And then the band's going to lead us.